Ho, 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 this is Gil Manser welcoming you to our 2016 Holiday Gift Books edition for word-by-word conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. What do The Secret History of Twin Peaks, Vincent's Starry Night, How to Make a Spaceship, The Secret Life of Trees, The Girl Who Drank the Moon, and Young Frankenstein have in common? These fascinating titles are all included among the gift books we will be chatting about with Cheryl Kotler, Michelle Bella, and the book buyers for, in other words, sorry, Cheryl Kotler, Michelle Bella, the book buyers for Copperfield's Bookstores. Cheryl and Michelle, I want to thank you for continuing what has become an annual tradition on Word by Word, sharing your favorite ideas for gift books with our listening audience. Well, thank you, Gil. Yes, we love coming. We're, we've finally gotten comfortable after... Well, we've times. we've done before uh, the 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 mics turned on. We've been sitting passing books back and forth, and by popular acclaim among the two experts who have come in, we're going to start with one book. Who wants to introduce that? Well, I'll introduce which you call a very weird and very strange book. Yes, in fact, it's called the Voynich Manuscript. Spell that V O Y N I C H. And when the sales rep came in to show it to us, she said, this is the most fascinating, incomprehensible book ever, and I totally love it. So I think that was a great line. What I want to do is just give you – it's a large coffee table book, and this book is about a manuscript that was discovered that was um, written in the 15th century. Um, And this is a little – Well, created – Created, Because it's yes. not just written. There's illustrations and graphs and charts. and Exactly. Yeah. And kind of in the Henry Dagger sense, the way the illustrations work. Where they that, look now, yes. Yeah. So this is what it says inside the flyleaf. The 15th century work commonly known as the Voynich Manuscript is often called the world's most mysterious book. Written in an unknown script by an unknown author... The manuscript has no clearer purpose now than when it was rediscovered in 1912 by a rare book dealer, Wilfred Voynich. This manuscript appears and disappears throughout history from the library of the Holy Roman Empire Rudolf II to a secret sale of books in 1903 by the Society of Jesus in Rome. The book's language has eluded decipherment, Its elaborate illustrations remain as baffling as they are beautiful. For the first time, this facsimile, complete with reproductions of elaborate folding sections, allows readers to explore this enigma in all its stunning detail. From its one-of-a-kind Voynich's text (laughs) to its illustrations of otherworldly plants, unfamiliar constellations, and naked women swimming through fantastical tubes and green baths. Okay. Well, that doesn't make people run out and look for it. We, It is a large format coffee table book, but even bigger than that, uh, that some of the pages fold out into four times the size of the book. Yes. So it'll cover a whole coffee table. Yes, and tell the Umberto oh, oh, Echo. I know that when Umberto Echo went to the library right. where this is, it was the one book that he wanted to check out and look at. And I think that brought interest to it again. Well, there's got to be all kinds of scholarly works about what how there. Is that discussed in here at all? Yes, it is. And um, what's 
absolutely wonderful to me is how the our customers in Copperfields have come in and looked at this. That I love that people want to buy a book that nobody can read in a way, but that is totally – it's kind of like – reading a mystery or a very enigmatic mystery with really fascinating illustrations. So you can tell Bell and I are fascinated with right. it. <laughs> right. That's true. Well, there's some things I can think that I've seen in history that are, you know, been created by people who have been in asylums and other places, yeah. that, you know, monks yeah. up by themselves, yeah. which uh, are unique, shall we say. But yeah. this is actually true. We know that this yes. has been documented through yes. the histories and the ages. Yes. It's not just yes. something created by the, you know, the the juniors at right. Yale or something. Right. And there's a page in that which is in the plant book. Ah. Talking Should about we go the, there? Yes, let's. Okay. It is, I don't know who to call it by. It's the Faden book of exploring the botanical world called Plant. The cover is very interesting. It's kind of a collage of plant Images? Surfboards. Each page, each petal, each petal, <laughs> oh, of, petals. The, uh, each petal of the flower I'm, I'm going to call different them pattern. surfboards of different sizes. Uh, so, that too. Okay. And it is a beautiful book with, with tremendously interesting illustrations. Each page you open up, there are combinations. Do you mind if I go yep, on do, a bit? Uh, there are combinations of those scientifically um, illustrations that were, you know, recorded when people discovered new plants and they would right. send them back to whatever, right. you know, Botanical. society. Yeah. Right. Prints, I guess they yeah. were botanical, botanical prints. illustrations. There are yeah. seed packets. There are, I don't know what that called. Australian? Australian Aboriginal, Plank, yeah. yeah, bush bananas it's called. Yeah. It's a, and, and each one is different. Some of them are quite uh, astoundingly beautiful. And like this single oriental poppy, a pigment print from a private collection of 1968. I don't know why that appeals to me so much. Yeah. Maybe that's the way... Somebody else liked it because the book just opens there. It's so that's a, it's a that's combination of for. art and gardening or science. And, and, and the page that's from the um, the Voynich manuscript. What which one are they putting in here? I I'm not sure, but I think it's a recognizable plant. Oh, okay. You know, and you, then comparing it to maybe a, it's a not some, current illustration of that. It is possible that the Voynich was a well. A, we could a, look it up here. Parallel universe, <laughs> and the man came back, and yeah, yeah, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Kind of from the right. same place. Right. Yeah. Well, going from the sublime to the ridiculous or whatever, um, <laughs> let's do Michael Chabon's new book. Oh, what a wonderful novel. Michael Chabon's new book, Moon Glow. Uh, Chabon, Chabon. Right? Yes, That's right. right. You're right. right. That's how he says it. <laughs> he, his new novel published um, just last week, I believe, and it's called Moon Glow. Now, the conceit in this novel is the <laughs> character... The, who's discussing interviewing his grandfather is named Michael Chabon and his so there is a wonderful mixture of is this real biography and fiction and how much is what but in no time at all you don't really worry about that you just kind of go with the story so the character Michael Chabon is interviewing his grandfather on his deathbed except mind you this grandfather is incredibly feisty and talkative and is finally telling his life stories even though telling his life stories that he refused to tell for most of his life so michael's sitting there rapidly recording and listening because he's always wanted to know the history of his grandfather and grandmother and his mother who's an only child so that's how it starts and then you get pieces of the grandfather in world war 2 where he was 
chasing after Werner von Braun because there's a whole piece about rocketry. There's um, the grandfather is chasing Werner von Braun. The grandfather because they're the allies are trying to capture him. As they yeah, and, have, and then Disney did. And did what? Disney did. I don't know if you're old enough to remember. He was the, the spokesperson for the, you know, sh- shot in this, the, when Disneyland opened and they had this space station, Tomorrowland. Huh. Werner Braun Braun was the the spokesperson at the time. Ah. So, you know, well, he came I, to in for money, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was a piece... There's a piece in here about how, on the one hand, there were certain Allied forces who wanted to kill yeah, yeah. the German scientists, and on the other hand, there were certain forces that wanted to get them out of there because how smart they were. And before what they the knew. Russians got them. Right, right, before the Russians got them. So there's a political element to this. Um, also, this grandfather, there's a piece where, because he's old now, he is in this retirement home in Florida. He gets involved with a lady also in the retirement home and because she's out there screaming for her cat because her cat disappears into the swamp and the retirement community has been complaining because they think there's a python in the swamp. So our character goes and sits in a lawn chair every day with a giant pole because he's waiting for the python to show up because he's going to knock its head off and calm everybody down. So this grandfather and Michael learning his story is both a character who is – wildly nutty and goofy, but also incredibly smart and talented. And the grandmother is a beautiful woman that the grandfather fell in love with and stayed married to forever, who has these incredible anxiety attacks that you come to understand, occasionally, that you come to understand have to do with her experience in World War II. She just escapes France and barely escapes. Mm. So there's pathos, there's comedy, there's a story that is so riveting that I sat and read this book for several hours without flinching and moving a muscle. That's how good a storyteller he is. Hmm. Moonglow. Moonglow. Chabon, Michael Chabon. Yes, really excellent. Very good. So you've got a book open across the way, Bella. It looks like a, a man hunting mastodon. Do this is called Vincent's Starry Night and ah. Other Stories. It's really a children's history of art. It would definitely call this nonfiction. I can pass it over to you okay. because it's really a beautiful book. They've chosen one artist to tie all of history together. Michael Bird. All of illustrated art illustrated by Kate Evans is the artist. I yes. Guess. yes, and if you look inside, it's really quite. Uh, dramatic the way she puts it all together makes it feel like it's one story even though of course you're really learning about history not just art right and the cover photo or painting is I assume Vincent Van Gogh painting Starry Starry Night with the sky above him looking the the way it was painted yeah Yeah. I was surprised when I saw it in the city how small a painting it is yeah Yeah. because you always you know right it should be huge huge. it's huge in our minds exactly so this has a um I mean, I know there's a few more women and, uh, you know, different takes on art history. It also goes all the way up to Ai Weiwei. And it's part of what I'm seeing is a huge number of nonfiction books for kids that are informational. And whether it's Common Core making people look for more nonfiction books that kids would want to read, I'm not sure. But this is – it's a beautiful book and it's a wonderful to hold in your hand and think that – you know, kids could explore all these different worlds at, in, a, in a single volume. And, of course, there's so much more you can, you can look at individually. 
in the same way that that's exploring the world through art, I think the other nonfiction like big picture book for kids that I showed you, the Underwater Under right, Earth, right. is a science-based, heavily illustrated, um, I don't know, gift book of nonfiction for kids. It's really one of my – these are two of my very favorites for this year, and there's a lot of them this year. Now, the interesting thing about this one is the cover one side. Let's see. I'm not, this is says underwater, and it shows you the people going down in – Different kinds of diving suits, diving yeah. suits of the eras. It's uh, written by Alexandra and Daniel Mesalinska, and it's printed in Poland. Are they Polish? I would think so. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's definitely a European edition. And then you flip it over, and it's it's a red cover instead of the blue now, and it's under Earth. And we have uh, someone drilling. I think it's a woman drilling, right? It, it goes hair. through lots and lots of detail. And uh, another one... Uh, Rappelling or something. Oh, wow. And look at all the stuff you find under the ground. Really, this is fun. This There's is kind of like those Richard Scarry books where you You'd open you need the book to look up and, and lay on the and, ground yep. and look at it page by page to really appreciate right. how much information there is. And I think only a kid could put that kind of energy into it. It's uh -huh. definitely written for children. Absolutely. It's not like appealing, I don't think, to adults in the same way. Um, well, okay, some adults would still find this highly appealing, but... You know it's, what I'm talking. You know, remember the yeah. Richard Scarry when he would yeah, do yeah, all yeah. the the buildings and the insides of what's happening yes, in the buildings, yeah. and, yes, and you know, lowly yes. worm is in all of them. I don't yeah. see a lowly worm, but it's that kind of yeah. of detail. Yeah, yeah. And and see, the fish are talking to each other. Don't <laughs> that they, they, they do. Are. They secretly they do. Are. They do. Yes, they can, every, we all communicate. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's very it fun. fun. Okay. What next? Well, we... you just gave me a perfect segue. See, perfect. Yeah. You said the fish talking to each other. We have um, a nonfiction book called <laughs> The Hidden Life of Trees. Because fish trees, and trees, trees talking talk. to each well, other. Well, sure. this is actually about trees talking to trees. Mm. What They Feel, How They Communicate for, uh, by Peter Wollobin. And this is a very, very well-documented scientific book. It's, it's, it's not a novel and airy-fairy and it has to do with it's and it's one of our best seller bo selling books too in fact across the country this has to do with discovery that through for example through the roots of trees when a, they've found out you know with wires and very sophisticated equipment when one tree is hit by say a bark beetle disease and starts suffering it can send messages through the soil to the na its neighboring trees who start producing antibodies of their sort. They're not called that against this particular infestation. They actually have discovered through spores, through the wind, and through the ground that they're, the neighboring trees are warning each other about how to protect themselves or and that sort of thing. It's it's really a wonderful it's book. It's not just danger that they uh, communicate. No, though. it's not just danger. In fact, there's a story in here about these three oaks, these hundred-year-old oaks in a small village right now somewhere that I can't remember. Um, and they measured when they changed their leaves, the color, the three trees changed um, colors. Mm -hmm. And the oaks are so old that when you go by them very fast, it looks like one giant tree. So they noticed that one tree always changed colors a little sooner than the others. And the supposition, make of this what you will, 
is that tree was a little more anxious than its other two neighboring trees to get into hibernation because of weather changes. But the other two were more in or one of the other two was ready to keep doing photosynthesis and collecting more sugars before it switched itself off to go into hibernation. You know, I didn't I can't express so much of the science in here, but it's that's got to do with tree personality. Not... I didn't know oaks did that. I understood that maple trees well, do there that you go. because I have friends yeah. who collect maple syrup yeah. sap and they tell yeah. me that in the same forest different trees will will go dormant at different times yeah. and the sap will stop flowing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, wonderful book. So Good. It's not as big a book as I expected it to be big, you know, with lots of trees, but it's just a little handy size. Yeah. Beautiful Almost illustrations like but black size. and white. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. These are the kind of nonfiction sort of science nature books that are also – they're informative but really interesting reads, what I like to call as a biographies of a thing. Biographies of a thing. Well, we have a thing we can talk about. I think it's a thing. Wouldn't we classify him a film as or, a thing? No, yeah. a film. Okay, we'll call the film. But I was referring to Young Frankenstein, a Mel Brooks book. And it's the story of the making of the film. And as I said earlier, Mel Brooks has figured out that we're constantly interested in the movies he made a long time ago. So he'll bring them back as Broadway productions or uh, books or, you know, musicals, whatever. Um, And this is people are interviewed. I opened it up and I had no idea who this person was. When I open the page, you does everyone know? Of course, I'm talking about Young Frankenstein, Frankenstein. Yeah. Right, it's not Frankenstein. It's Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and it starred Gene Wilder, and he is so good in it. Uh, yeah, and we miss him. So this shows the cast. It shows uh, Igor, not Igor. Right? Uh-huh. And it shows uh, the monster who um, became famous in other roles. It's just great. Look at their little outtakes and all those behind-the-scenes shots we love. Yeah. You know, with a very young Mel Brooks. Look at that. And crazy funny stories about the filming of the movie and some of the improvisations that would happen behind the scenes. And also, as you said, <laughs> um, stage sets and just, you know – Really a lively, wonderful, crazy discussion of a brilliant man, his idea, and the actors and the cast and the support system people he got together to make this movie. Truly one-of-a-kind movie that was created. Yeah. Yeah. Still worth watching. All right. We have to take a break. You are listening to our 2016 Holiday Gift Books edition of Word by Word, Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. In what has become an annual tradition, we are pleased to welcome the book buyers for Copperfield's bookstores, Cheryl Cotelur and Michelle Bella. We have a, They have a challenging task of choosing which books to talk about in under an hour. And they have come in today with canvas bags the size of Missouri that they've managed to haul down the into the studio. So we appreciate yeah. all the effort that you put into this and physical effort. Stay tuned for more great gift book ideas right here on KRCB-FM's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers. What next? You're pointing towards... Well, I'm looking at this. There's 
Go ahead and talk about hidden figures. I think there might be a, a young a young adult adaptation of this book that's also coming out because this the one there's a movie coming right. Out, right? I my um, not that I have to have segues every time, but my segue from the <laughs> Mel Brooks to this book. The reason I picked it up is because this book, Hidden Figures, by Margot Lee Shetterly, is com- is coming out as a movie in I think very soon. The one that's coming out on Christmas Day? Perhaps. I believe it's either Christmas Day or the very beginning of January. But So this is a true story of when the America's fledgling aeronautics industry needed scientists and mathematicians to help them develop a space program. This was during World War II, and all the guys were off fighting, and somebody thought to go look for women mathematicians. My gosh, there's plenty of us. Yes, there are. And this particular group of mathematicians that they found to work on creating the space agency and the space program are all African-American women. Hmm. Really, really fascinating story. They had a really tough road to hoe, but the way that they formed a collective and and the work that they did is monumental, and it's about time they get recognized. I saw a trailer for the movie, and now, mind you, the book was done first, Mm -hmm. Um. And there's more information in the book. But I saw a trailer for the movie and noticed that uh, there's a couple of really well-known actresses playing some of the roles, one of whom won an Oscar recently, and I'm, I can't remember right now her name. But the scene that I saw was riveting. They, they did incredible work. And, yes, this could be a great crossover book. It's, it's you know, written for anyone who cares about history, cares about um, – you know, women succeeding and math and science and also the obstacles that they had to face to get their ideas accepted and published and not published under a man's name. It's really quite a powerful story. Right. Well, good. So we've got some we've got some truth. We've got some not so quite true with um, Michael Chabon talking with his grandfather, maybe. Right. Yeah. You know, I went for that. that, The whole time I was reading it, I just was like part of Michael's family. I mean, I just went for it because so much of it is true that who even cares (laughs) whether it is or it isn't. You know, when I wrote a blurb about that book, my first line was there is no better consummate storyteller than Michael Chabon. I mean, he tells a story so well that whatever he talks about, you just want to listen or read in this case. You're probably thinking of Octavia Spencer. I looked it up. The actress uh, who won the Oscar. Yeah, yes. yes. She's starring with Janelle Monáe, Kevin Costner, Kristen Dunst, Jim Parsons, uh, Teresa P. Henson, and Katherine Johnson in Hidden Figures, the movie that is, yes, indeed, coming out around Christmas time. Great, great. I plan to be there. December 25th. How more Christmas time can you be there? Yeah, right. yeah. It just sounds fascinating. Okay. So... We got another point. You are so good. Look at this. She sits there in the background and stacks the books up. This is Bella's secret passion. Put them in order. Um, News of the World, a novel by Paulette Lewis. Giles. 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 Yeah. This is a wonderful and slightly undersized hardcover novel for for what that's worth. It's a little bit smaller than the usual. Um, This book was shortlisted for the National Book Award. Um, I thought that it came very close to winning. I love this story. And the first thing I'm going to say is that in this particular 
time that we're in, people are looking for something to read that isn't just going to continue to be terribly upsetting because we've been through some very upsetting and we currently are in some upsetting times. So News of the World is set in 1850s in um, it, in America. And the character starts out, he's a 70-some-year-old man, and how he used to have a print shop. This is kind of a love letter to writing also. And so he makes his living traveling from small town to small town, reading world newspapers that he somehow gets through the telegraph. He to an audience? To an audience. And if people have to put a dime in a can, and then that's their their entertainment when they – you know, have an evening free, and he reads sections of newspapers. Okay. So... Was his last name Cronkite? Yeah. <laughs> the great-great-grandfather, yes, yes. yes. So very early on, some Texas Ranger types that he knows come up to him and say, we need to, you to do a job for us that we can't do. And they have a little feral girl, very wild young girl. She's a 10-year-old that they bring to him, and they give him a a very valuable coin and say, take her back to her family in Texas. She had been captured when she was six years old by the Kiowa and they grabbed her and they want her return to her German American family in Texas. Well, what you come to discover is this little girl wants nothing to do with going back to her family. So she fights this, but the friendship between this 70-year-old man and this little girl is so amazing. He has to teach her how to speak English mm -hmm, again. Mm -hmm. And um, they end up bonding in an amazing way. He buys a wagon that says, you know, medicines on the side, a covered wagon so they can get back. They have dangers along the way. And I, I will tell you one story. They're beset by um, highwaymen, robbers at one point, and they kind of see this is coming, so they hide up in the rocks, but they don't have ammunition, but they have a rifle. And she figures out and puts all these dimes in the shotgun, and when the bad guys get close, they, can, they pepper them with these basically speeding dimes, right. which hurt like hell, and they all run off. And so it's, but it's very moving. It has a social um, commentary inside a very well-told tale. So let's and say that again. News of the World of by the world. Paulette Giles. And the end papers in both in the front and the back are the map of where they're traveling, the tiny little towns in 1850. Don't we love maps? We love maps. Fronts yeah. and backs books. of books. Yeah. 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 Kid books have lots of maps, but adults right. hardly ever get maps yeah. these In fact, days. it says from Wichita Falls to San Antonio. Wonderful <sighs> book. Okay. We have to go with the segue to Rancher, Farmer, Fisherman. Oh, actually um, – this book, this is a nonfiction book, and I picked this thinking that our community would really love this book. You know, I hope that everyone reads it. What it is, it's our author, Miriam Horn, has interviewed five pivotal people in the country who are ranchers, farmers, and fishermen who would – Commercial fishermen? Yes. Well, not, not casting for. No, oh, yeah. Kind of, commercial yeah. fishermen. All of these people have big concerns and make their living this way, and their communities do by ranching, farming, or fishing. All of these people would disdain being called conservationists. Mm -hmm. What they are, but they are, in fact, and the reason they are is they come to understand if they do not protect the land and the watersheds, 
their own communities and industry will be destroyed. So they have a stewardship. So the quality of the work that they do and how they tell you that one of the things that one of the guys is saying how difficult it was to go talk to people that he didn't normally talk to, meet the other. And in the case of the rancher, it had to do with meet conservationists and fish and game rangers that they're all distrustful of. Mm -hmm. So – They meet with people they don't usually talk to and then say, "Okay, now we're going to go back to our community and our community is going to come up with a way to restore our ranch lands while we're ranching, restore the Gulf of Mexico while we're fishing and talk to. So it's an environmental book of little small communities really turning around problems. And working together. Working together and working with climate change issues. And uh, I could see people here being very interested in that. It is fabulous. I was reading it in the lobby before we started all, you know, and it's fabulous. Great, great. Bella, do you have some more over there? We I, need some kid I books. I have a couple of kid novels that are my favorites ah. this year. I want to talk about The Poet's Dog by Patricia McLaughlin, I think is how you pronounce her name. She wrote Sarah Plain and Tall mm. a few years ago. How many ago. years ago was that? Yeah. yeah. 10, 20, yeah, 30, some, a long time like ago. That. So she, she's written a lot of books since then, but um, she's got a very, I don't know, it's not small story, but a, a story for quite young kids. I'd say this would be perfect for a nine-year-old. and um, But not filled with pictures. No. Oh, no, no. This is a novel. This is your an early chapter book is what we would call okay. it at this kind of – lots of white space on the page, but – and it's not terribly long, but it – so kids can feel really successful reading it. But it's a wonderfully sweet story about a world where children and poets can literally understand dogs, but only children and poets. So if you're not truly a poet, you you can't communicate with this – I believe it's a Labrador that is – rescues these two children in a snowstorm and they end up stuck together surviving for days in a cabin and it's just a charming story where I mean not everything is entirely positive but it talks about poetry quite a bit and these kids live up to their best and of course it all ends well which we like in this level age kind of story. Yeah, yeah I've opened it up happens to be page 55 and it reads like this. The room was warm, but Flora sat with a blanket around her shoulders. She had a faraway look. What are you thinking about, I asked. My youth, she said. Nickel grinned. Like now, he asked. Flora shook her head. I feel different. You are different, I said. It's great. It's, it's all like that. It's a yes. wonderful she, book. Isn't this a rediscovered manuscript? I thought I read. No, I don't think no, so. No. Wow. Yeah. Not dead yet. Yeah. Not dead yeah. yet. Um, <laughs> the other children's novel that I brought with me is The Girl Who Drank the Moon. And uh-huh. it's for a slightly, an older child. There's certainly a lot more dark things that happen in this world. It's very fairy tale fantasy and about a witch who has this child. And they, she literally gets magic from the moon. And it's it's been very popular with everybody who's read it. it is that really a sequel like to the other book by the same no. author? No. Uh, no, the, she's only written The Witch's Boy is yeah, the that's, other book. Yeah, that's but the I, other book. Yeah, but no, no, I think it's a standalone and it works really well. Another high fantasy. There is a dragon, uh, you know, all the things you need in a good. A hungry dragon? 
Uh, no, a very that was a hungry very caring uh, oh, dragon. That's a whole different, whole different level uh, of book. Yes, I know. Yes, we so, have to have so, those books with holes. In of them. course, there's 20 other novels that I would recommend. So, but they're up on the website this year. There's and a, tell a big us, list. please do a little plug for the the website URL. We are at copperfieldsbooks.com. No apostrophe in Copperfields. No. And uh, all of the books we're talking about and considerably more are on our website as our holiday picks as well as all of our events and – Various book clubs and teen yeah, and children's I've things and so it. forth. I recommend it. Getting, we're getting more and more list orientated mm-hmm. on the website. Yeah. So please so. do. Let it. me ask you. I'm gonna. This is a secret behind the scenes. What happens at Copperfields? How do you put these lists together? Do you all sit together in a room and throw things at a dartboard? Or well, we we take our own categories. You've and, got individual. Yeah. Like and I, then, I pick okay. most of the kid books with the other people who are most into kid books in the right. stores. Right. So yeah. we get some local input. And I um, I do the adult um, nonfiction, politics, history, biography, and then the adult fiction. And all year long when we're buying books, we're doing something called tagging, which is re- making a note to ourselves that we can recover later on on an electronic catalog saying this is a possibility. We, the notes are, have various words in them. but So when we get into the fall, I will – um, upload all the tags and look at what I call my best fall books of any subject. And then knowing that it, for our list that I have to have eight biographies, eight uh, novels, and uh, ten history pol- political books or however many we had, um, I try and think very hard about safer nonfiction. Will it be interesting to my community? Will it be something that we all should read, say, as a um, some important issue like conservation, climate change? Um, also, will it be entertaining, not in every single book, but in the novels? I like to have novels that are strong and powerful, but also always have something that is more entertaining than it is, say, educational. So those are the things I – pick and then I winnow my list down. Well, the question that comes to mind is, you know, Copperfields is growing in its outlets, in its communities. Right. And each one that I've visited has a distinct uh, feel, I guess I right. would say, to when you walk in the door. Right. Uh, and the books that are and how they're arranged and they're not, it's not a cookie cutter. Right. Every, everyone has its own uh, persona of a bookstore. And so how do you from a centralized place to make this big, you know, behemoth that is Copperfields, come up with a way to have something for each of the different audiences. The mythology of the individual bookstore. You know, yes. you have it in your head as like what you think and and you see it by what they sell. Right. And so they sold the And the, what books. you see when you walk in the door. Yeah. Right. Because, first off, for economic reasons, we can only make a list of eight adult novel fiction novels and same thing and 10 <laughs> non you know history and so forth to advertise them all over the place we only have one list even though we have eight stores right what i consider success is when one or two stores fall in love with a two or three on that list and go crazy and sell tons of them and then a store that's 30 miles away falls crazy with two or three of a different one on the same eight book list right. i'm successful 
And our job as buyers, too, is to provide good books for people to read that they wouldn't – even the staff wouldn't necessarily think, oh, why would I, you know, be putting – telling – handing this Winston Churchill book to everybody? Mm-hmm, I'm, mm-hmm. you know – 29 years old and da 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 da. So I also have to convince the staff and through them, the customers, that you don't know about this book, but it's a good one. Right. Shall we talk about the, yeah. the Winston Churchill book? Yeah. This book. Because I was just watching on TV, I was watching uh, the one called The Crown. Yeah. And it had, you know, Winston Churchill with John Lithgow playing it, which uh, I thought was interesting. And then I realized, you know, Churchill's mother was an American, so maybe there's a logic to this. Yeah. Right? But um, he was an interesting man. Very much so. And I say that with a big smile on my face because, frankly, I have never really read anything about Winston Churchill he until this book. He has a five-volume set? Yes. Yeah. There's yeah. massive amounts of books about Winston Churchill. Right. And what most everybody thinks about is that portly, sort of Alfred Hitchcockian-looking guy. Of, of his older time. Of his older years. Yeah. So Hero of the Empire by Candace Millard is actually uh, delving into a piece of history of Churchill when he's 20 years old, starting about there. And let me just quickly say, Candace Millard is a well-known name historian. She has a every book she writes does very very well. She wrote Destiny of the Republic and The River of Doubt about the- Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. So she's got a track record, and right there that we hope will bring people to this book. So. The subtitle is The Boer War, A Daring Escape, and the Making of Winston Churchill. So Churchill's about 20, and he's well from a wealthy family in England, and he decides he would go down to um, South Africa and fight in the Boer War on the English side. So the thing that's so funny to me is that as he goes down there, he has a retinue with him, including somebody who carries his tea caddy so that he can have his tea made just in a certain way that he's always liked having it made. Somewhere other that he's a, is quintessentially British, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so he's rough and tumble, but he's still from a wealthy background. Well, he's captured, and he's put in a prisoner's of war camp, and it's quite brutal. He escapes from this camp. This is a true this story. This is the Boers who were the yes. Afrikaans. Right. Yes. yes, this is a true story. He escapes from this camp that nobody's ever escaped from, walks 300 miles through the African veld, essentially desert, you know, trying not to be captured, gets back to his original group, re-ups, grabs a bunch of hardy souls that he knows well, and then treks back to where this camp is and breaks it open and rescues his fellow prisoners. That was the beginning of the making of the man. Mm. That's a It's a great story. Yeah, you know when I what didn't know moved yeah. him from being quite so pampered to thinking about fellow <laughs> his fellow man. It's a great story. Cool. All right, let's talk about Seiji Azawa, the uh, great conductor who used to be with the San Francisco Symphony and then went on to other even you know more acclaim. It, there's one. By Murakami. Is it the same Murakami? Yes. 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 So Haruki Murakami that most of us know is just this wonderful Japanese novelist who writes novels that have um, – he always follows his fascination. So right there you, you, you will easily get engaged in his books. And there's often sort of a sense of magical realism, shall we call it, in a number of his books. Now, this is a nonfiction book where he sat down with his favorite composer, Seiji Ozawa, who is now retired, 
Most people know Sergio Zawa as being the conductor of the Boston Symphony for 29 years. But Murakami loves music. So he sits down over a two-year period with Ozawa, both these Japanese men of uh, great arts and letters, and just discusses music. And in somewhere in those discussions, also the arts and mm-hmm. writing, because mm-hmm. there's some similarities. And it, it's just a – it's kind of my dinner with Andre with two very bright people <laughs> talking. Is it literally dialogue? Yes, yeah. One so it's says, done from so it's uh, transcripts? Transcripts of their oh. conversations. Um, I was reading this part where uh, Ozawa was very poor when he was first becoming a conductor, and he's at some kind of um, uh, music camp. It might be Tanglewood. I'm not sure. Where he sees another conductor slightly older than him reading the score, the Hond- uh, Mahler's scores, and he did not have a very fancy piano at the time, so there was a lot of music he didn't know because he couldn't play it just for himself to learn the score. And then he realized, well, he could read the scores. He was so taken with this idea that he would sit there that this person was reading music scores to get familiar with a particular composer's music. And it's just funny stories like that and how you know how, they, how their brains work and how they learn. The other piece that was interesting was a conductor has to learn that in a score, maybe three instruments are playing at the same time, but the conductor's place is to decide which one should have more prominence over the others. To sort of that's how. Com- or to con- follow those little Italian words that mean you know here or there. Yes. Right? So yes. the so the uh, that's where your conductor really has the ability to flavor the way you hear. A particular piece of music. Well, in reading a score, I think it's important that some of our listeners may not know because they may have never seen a conductor's score. It's not just one, you know, when you're playing the oboe or you're playing the trumpet or something. You've got that instrument's lines, you know, one over above the other. There are, I don't know, 55 more pages for a, a score for the conductor because he's got two pages facing, each with different Instruments yes. that are, as you say, were, are playing at the same time. One coming in, one doing the counterpoint, one doing over here, one doing the background, yes. one only doing the lyrical part, one only doing, you know, the the bass part, whatever it might be. You, name you it. got it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. It's... And they and to the fact that you uh, someone can sit down and read all those just to read, right. like we read one line in a book, is just astounding. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, anyway, it's just a very interesting, smart fabulous book for people who are curious about the arts and how they work and music in particular. Okay. You have to tell me about the wasp that brainwashed the caterpillar. This is a wonderful science book, and this is so much a crossover, it's not funny. Meaning, I'm looking at my colleague, um, Michelle, this meaning that this is an adult um, science book, but written in short segments about really creepy, wonderful sort of insects and animals that, boy, a 12-year-old boy would go crazy. (laughs) The strange things they do. Yeah. And I can't on the air tell you some of what some of them do because they're pretty odd. Like like the the female uh, burning mantis. Yes, biting off the head. Well, there's some very odd things. But I was... um, and I love the picture on the cover. Basically, it has to do mostly with 
more the insect world, but insect and animal world, whereby they find ways to survive by being uh, having a parasitic relationship with another insect or having developed some kind of odd way that they support themselves in community or by themselves so that this little tiny thing can live for a very long time. Symbiotic. Yeah, yeah. I was reading about something called the water bear. And the water and by the way, this book is very funny, so it'll use a word like uh oh, I think it was celiopods or some word and then right in parentheses parentheses after that it'll say itty bitty things in the water so so it so helps highly you. technical yeah yes. so it's very humorous and it very much helps you understand what they're talking about right. and with really fun illustrations so this little itty bitty thing in the water called a water bear is something that has the, and and by the way they discover why the um why the uh these the reason they're Studying these itty bitty things is because they want to learn what they know how to do to bring it into our own science. Mm -hmm. So this water bear bug can survive for 30 or 40 years. It lives in water, but it can survive completely dehydrated because it can shrink down into close itself up into hibernation. They call it um, suspended animation. It's actually mastered suspended animation. And then they tried this thing where they took these little water bears and they put them in a space capsule and shot them into space very close to ultraviolet lights and all that. And they all survived and came back. They can't figure out exactly how these tiny little itty-bitty things can handle. Um, the lowest temperature ever recorded is like 460 degrees minus so, and they survive that. So they're freeze dried. Yes, they can yeah. freeze dry. They can suspend. And they reanimate. Can, so what reanimates? Is yeah. it just the water? Um, they put them they in water. Put them in water. When they got back, they put them in water. Yeah, but they, I mean, in the in the wild, is it just the rain or something? I think like? they live in mud. Ah. They live in these, mud. These and are also oh. known as tardigrades, which are in the underwater book and oh. underground. Uh -huh. you know, oh, there you go. Connections yeah. together here. Yeah. So that book is all about odd, interesting tidbits of, of nature. And I think can, if we could talk about Certainly. Atlas Obscura. Let's do Atlas Obscura. This is all Joshua about small pieces of Feder? information is also. F-O-E-R, is it? Four? Four. Uh, well, then I actually don't know. I had never looked at this as thinking about it in terms of like who wrote it because this is – um, kind of a web-driven phenomena of looking at very odd, interesting little things that are going on all over the world. And if you're interested in knowing that in Livermore... And these are actually true. This is this not This is all made supposed to be news. true. Yeah, it's a, absolutely. It's kind of a travel book. It's an atlas. It totally yeah. is an atlas, and it's separated out by continent. By country, and yeah. you can look and see details of the world around you, and once you realize, oh, yeah, I've, I heard about that reservoir and that's so strange that that person has an underground garden or in Fresno and that kind of thing. <laughs> I bet it's, it's probably the same kind of thing that this person has over here in France. And, and boy, that would really be interesting to go look at that other thing. It's, it's a good, it's a great gift for someone you don't know what kind of fiction they read. But I think pretty much anybody would be interested in looking at this. They're calling it an explorer's guide to the world's hidden wonders. So what about that light bulb? Okay, it's in Livermore. <laughs> All right, the light bulb in Livermore. <laughs> that you had heard of, right? I had, yes. It's called the Centennial Bulb. 
and it's the world's most enduring light bulb. Has been burning almost nonstop for over a century, and you can find out about so it. So tell me, does it say that it was at a fire station originally? It is. In June 2015, Fire Station Six hosted a raging party in honor of a light bulb. Right. And, and <laughs> one million hours of service for this bulb. Mm-hmm. And because they never turned it off. Never turned it off. That's right. Well, they did, actually. They moved it. That was the big issue. Should oh. we turn it off? And, and it turned back on? And no. They finally figured out if we bring in battery, we don't have to turn it off. Oh. Duh, right? Well, you know, 100 years of science <laughs> sure. behind that. And, yeah. and you marked a page. I did. I just wanted to read this because this, this is something that I happened to open up, and it, uh, it, it jumped off the page at me, literally. And... Um, it's in Japan. It's um, on page 155. It is the Zoo Escaped Animal Drill. Every February, a papier-mâché rhino lunches at the staff of the Uino Zoo, operated by a pair of zookeepers. It's one of the fake creatures used in their annual escaped animal drill, and they chase after these <laughs> strange constructions. It shows you a picture of, I guess it's supposed to be a zebra, but it's made out of a what looks like a... Uh, a uh, shower curtain with a head on it, and two people's legs are, you know, sticking below it, and they're chasing after it with one of those orange, you know, construction yeah. um, fences, fences, yeah. pla- you know, the plastic, and yeah. trying to capture it, which just looks <laughs> silly as can be. But it happens every year it's, they have it, that. For, so unlike like the bulls in Pamplona, you That's, can actually watch the training of the escaping. The escaping animals from um, this zoological park. <laughs> Well, this has been fun. Ho, ho, ho. I am your Santa Claus of a host again, Gil Manser, who with my wizard of a studio engineer and the KRCB-FM program director, Sean Knight, our radio elf, Wendy Nicholson, and theme music composer, Bill Conti, we want to wish you the most joyous of holiday cheer. We're glad you've shared the last hour with us for the 2016 Holiday Gift Books edition of Word by Word, Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Once again, we've been pleased to welcome the book buyers from local Copperfields bookstores, Cheryl Cotler, Michelle Vela, and their challenging task of choosing which books to talk about with only the hour to do so. We thank our listeners for their continued tangible support of KRCB-FM, and this is the week in which we do part of our annual pledge drive, so we've got some words of wisdom we're going to share with you as well. Our next word-by-word show will be broadcast from 4 to 5 on the afternoon, the second Sunday afternoon in January, whose date I do not have written down here. Until then, let me be the first to wish you a Happy New Year.